Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for downloading Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are descriptive discussions about suicide and homophobic abuse. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early lives to achieve great success. Our guest today is the most capped and celebrated referee in rugby history. Nigel Owens retired from the international scene in the autumn after officiating his 100th test, the first person to reach that milestone. He'd been refereeing for 35 years, having started at the age of 16, and his humour on the pitch will be greatly missed during the Six Nations this year. As a gay man, he never fitted rugby's macho stereotype, and he has described the game as a source of hope during his darkest moments wrestling with his sexuality. Rugby and the people within rugby saved my life, he once said. That is why I will always owe more to rugby and the people within rugby than rugby will ever owe to me. Nigel Owens, thank you very much for joining us. Are you sorry not to be refereeing the Six Nations? To be honest, um, not really, no. no. When, it, when it kicks off, it'll, I probably will be sorry, but... Um, uh, but no, I've, I've you know I've, I've got the farmer stuff at home here, which which is part of the plan really um, to sort of help with the transition of what had been my life in in refereeing week in week out to help with the transition of that coming to an end. But I had something else that I had very passionate and wanted to do. And when I was eight years of age, a long time before I started refereeing, my dream was to to be a farmer. Uh, so. 42 years later, I've achieved that dream. So that was my first dream before any refereeing came into my mind in, in any shape of, of form. So, and the farm is keeping me busy now. I'm enjoying it. I've got a lot of other things to do as well. Um, some TV work, um, which we filmed during the international season, uh, other stuff to do as well. I'm doing a bit of work as a pundit during the Six Nations as well. So I'll be involved in the Six Nations and in, in a different capacity. So I, I'm not missing it as much as I thought I would at the moment, to be honest with you, which, which is a bit frightening, I think. <laughs> Will you watch it or do you find it too irritating? to see the other referees and what they're deciding. No, I I I will watch it because obviously it'll be it'll be part of my of my role with with SOC now to to punditry on the game with them so I'll be there live for the for the Wales games. And always I'll watch the other games as well um because of two reasons. Um one out of, out of interest the Six Nations is is a special time every year in the rugby calendar and also as well I'm going to be doing a couple of days a week with the Welsh Rugby Union coaching uh, one or two of our uh, young referees who hopefully will 
become the next international referees uh, in the next couple of seasons. So part of my work in coaching them is important that I that I keep up with the game and in speed with, with the way that the game is being played and, and refereed. And I'll also be refereeing till till the end of the season here anyway, at least. So um yeah, no, I I will be watching um the other games and, and watching the refereeing very closely as as well. And I'm sure like Every other passionate Welsh fan, I'll be I'll be shouting at the referee, jumping up and down if I think he's got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking to you from your farm in Wales, how does your life compare now to refereeing these six foot plus eighteen stone men? Not very different because I've got a deal now with um, nine hundred thousand kilos um, <laughs> bulls and cows, <laughs> uh, and then uh, young calves which are a little bit too quick to catch sometimes. So um, it's not that different, to be honest. No, it is. Uh, it's, it's it's very very enjoyable and and the main difference is 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 I'm home you know with refereeing over the years it, it took me to pretty much every corner of the world and uh, I enjoyed every minute of it but you were away a lot you sacrifice a lot of your personal and family life to do your job and the commitment of it um, so the main difference is I'm I'm home now which which is the big plus about it and and one. Of the main reasons why why I actually did decide to to call it an end was one yes you know getting to an age where you're getting closer to to the end but also as well I I didn't want to sort of carry on for another three years and go to the World Cup in 2023 in in France and be away for eight weeks out there again and a lot of travelling and being away you know a lot of times during the year for the next two or three years as well so um, that that was one of the one of the reasons why I decided to call it a day as as well. Um, so yeah, life at life at home is, is is really enjoyable and very quiet, but um, but very very enjoyable. But, but a lot of hard work, of course. We we want to take you back to your roots. It sounds as if you feel as if you are going home. And you were born in a small village in rural Wales, and you spent your first part of your life on a farm. Was it absolute bliss? Did you love the rural life, or were you itching to get to a city? No. Uh, Never wish to get to the city at all. Um, I, I enjoy going to the city. Sometimes I, I, I go to London or Cardiff quite often for work, or I do some work in London. And you know, I enjoy going to to the city. We spent eight weeks in in London during the 2015 World Cup at the Landmark Hotel, right in the, in the centre of of London, and, and enjoyed it. But um, no, I am a, I am a country person. I am a rural person for sure. You know, um, small village community, um, which is. What most of Wales is is about, really, and it's a very very special place. It's a very different way of life, a very different place to to the cities. Um, you know, your upbringing is very different. Um, there's a community spirit where everybody knows everybody, everybody pulls together, and obviously Welsh being my first language, you know, being brought up, you know, pretty much everybody in the village were fluent Welsh speaking. I couldn't speak English until I was about seven or eight years of age when I started using English for the first time and was actually taught English in. In school, so yeah, my, my upbringing was a very sort of rural upbringing, which, which I loved every minute of it. And um, I suppose yes, I, I've gone back to my roots, I guess. But I didn't really move very far. I've only moved about a mile and a half down down the road from from Manicari to Ponaberem, where I'm living now. So um, yes, some people do travel away. You know, some people do move to different countries to to live. A lot of it now is a necessity that you have to move sometimes to bigger towns or cities for for work, um, which is which is very sad because there's not much work around in some of these local communities like there was many years ago. But um, you know, a lot of people you know stay stay true to their communities because it's a very very special place. And your role in the sport has long been seen as an inspirational one for the LGBTQ plus society. When did you first realise that you might be gay? 
was about 19, 19, 18, 19 years of age. Um, again, you know, being being brought up in that small rural community and in an old fashioned way uh, here in, in West Wales and things are very different at that time. You know, you, your mum teaches you the ways of the world. You get older, you get a girlfriend and then you get married, you get kids and become a grandparent. And, and that's the way the world keeps on going round. But then here I was at 19 years of age, you know, for the first time ever, finding myself on occasions, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time, but only on occasions finding myself um, attracted to men. And this was something totally alien, something I'd never experienced before and, and something that I certainly knew nothing about before. So it was a very, a very, very scary experience, a very scary time um, for me personally in, in these times but also as well which would have been contributed hugely by the environment at the time of homophobia rife um being gay was you know was, was was wrong in the eyes of so many people and reading that it was an illness that you could be cured from and so a lot of things contributed to it becoming a very 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 difficult time and, and one of those was you know for 19 years of age bang one day I, finding myself attracted to men thinking you know what the hell is going on here was there anyone you could talk to or was it just a total taboo in the whole area and in your family and was it just absolutely impossible to talk to anyone well yes it was impossible to talk to people because it you know you're in a different generation back back then you know you're going back now to to the sort of late 80s early 90s where things were were very different um to what they are today you know for some people it just becomes the natural way of growing up, you know, at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age, they they know they're gay and, and that's them. But then for other people, you know, like myself, for example, at 19 years of age, all of a sudden you're finding, well, you know, what, what's, what's going on here? So um, it's very difficult to open up and talk about things, which you were really struggling in accepting yourself. So, and that is the biggest challenge, I think. And that was the biggest challenge for me in, in accepting myself who I was. And it was only then, you know, in my mid-20s after the a suicide attempt um did i accept who i was and only accepting who i was was i then able then to sort of move on and you know what am i going to do about it now you know do i talk to somebody but then that still took another six or seven years i think before i actually did tell people because of the environment around you at the time you know working and refereeing in the in the macho world of rugby where there was nobody out and not knowing whether I'd be able to carry on my refereeing if people found out I was gay. So, um, yeah, a lot of things contributed hugely to, to it being a very, very difficult time in, in, in my life. It sounds unbelievably traumatising, but you also at some stage had bulimia, didn't you, during the period? Do you think that was in some way about trying to get control of your body? Yeah, I, I think it was because, you know, after sort of having these gay thoughts or the finding myself attracted to, to men at this sort of time of my, of my life and then suffering from sort of severe depression because of the anxiety and worrying about it to become somebody, becoming somebody I knew nothing about and becoming somebody I certainly didn't didn't want to be. I then sort of started drinking a lot to, to comfort myself, to deal with these demons inside my head. I then started binge eating a lot and and put a lot of a lot of weight on and obese to be honest and and, and quite unhealthy as well in in, in a way and um, I then was not happy within the the body I was was in you know I was refereeing at the time so it was you know struggling with my fitness was was one reason image was was another one you know when I was finding myself attracted to two men thinking well they're not going to find me attracted if you know if I'm going to be looking like this you know I then sort of 
lost weight the wrong and unhealthy way where I became bulimic, where pretty much, you know, everything I would eat, I would, I would bring it back up. And, you know, that was a, a vicious circle that I was in then for, for many, many years and, and, and still am, unfortunately. I still suffer from bulimia today, but not, not to the extent I did, I did back then. You also at one point started taking steroids, didn't you? Did, how bad did it get? Um, yeah, well, after I lost a lot of weight through becoming bulimic, uh, I was very thin, very pale. Um, you know, I'd gone from something like 16 and a half stone down to something like 11 stone. I wanted to go to the, to the gym then to do some weight training, you know, one for my fitness for refereeing, but also one to get a, in a body that I would not be afraid for people to see and people would find attractive as well in one sense. So um, I went to, to the gym, started weight training and then got hooked on to, to steroids, started using steroids to get, you know, better gains or to get some bigger muscles or to get it quicker and, you know, got into that circle then of, of using steroids. And then when your body starts changing, you put some weight and muscle on and you're feeling good, you're looking good, you get confidence within yourself. And then when you stop taking the steroids, then you, you lose a lot of those gains. And then you think, well, I don't want to lose these gains. And then you keep on the steroids and you, you can't get off them. And then you're hooked on them then in, in one sense. So by the time I was in my mid-20s, 25, 26, you know, I was suffering from severe depression and mental health issues in a very, very dark place. I was uh, bulimic and, and I was hooked on steroids. And, you know, steroids has many side effects for for, for your health, um, but also for your mental health as well, because, you know, if, if, if you're feeling down then and you're on steroids, it can make it 10 times worse. If you, you know, a little bit impatient, if you're on steroids, it'll make it 10 times worse. There's a lot of side effects that steroids had, and um, it all contributed then to, to me getting darker and darker and darker into this dark place. And, um, you know, and then one night I, I did something that I will, will regret for the rest of my life. You know, when I left a note for my mum and dad and, uh, I said I couldn't carry on my my life anymore. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forgive myself for what I put my mum and dad through when they got up that morning and, and read a note and, and thought they were never going to see their, their only only child ever again. And um, I was lucky, you know, I, I overdosed. I had a shotgun with me as well because I'd been working on, on the farm, drunk a bottle of whiskey, and I, I slipped into a coma. And um, the time, you know, the, the police helicopter was searching for me, and the time they found me, I was, was unconscious and slipping into hypothermia and got airlifted to, to hospital and um, intensive care for a couple of days. And then when the doctor came around and said, um, you're a very, very lucky young man, Nigel, it'd been another 20, 30 minutes and it'd been um, probably too late to, to save you. And um, my mum and dad came to visit and family and friends came to visit and people asking, you know, why and do you want to talk about it and still wouldn't tell anybody anything. And, um, and then one evening, whilst I was still in hospital, some family and friends left, my mum and dad left, but then my mum came back on her own and she said to me, um, if you ever do anything like that again, then you may as well take me and your dad with you because we don't want to carry on our life without you in it. And that, that, that is the moment that my life was saved because I started crying to myself and I, and I said to myself, this is who I am. There's no choice here. There are many, many things in life we can choose. You can choose where you live, where you work, who you marry, what car you drive, what football or rugby team you support. Many, many things in life, what your values are, your moral compass. Many things we choose, but, um, but our sexuality is, is, is not one of them. It, it, you are who, who you are. And, and that's what I realized um, that night in, in that hospital when my mum my came back and, and, and said, those, said those words to me. 
Why do you feel you still couldn't say you were gay? Because could you not tell your parents at all, even then? Or did you find it was just too painful or were you worried about their reaction? Yeah, I was worried about their reaction. Um, you know, you were still, and still today, you, you hear the word gay or, you know, derogatory language used in a homophobic way. Um, I've got to say as well, mind, that um, you hear kids today using the word gay. And one, one of my little cousins said, oh, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to go to school during this COVID because oh, I hate school, it's gay. And I was just asking, well, what do you mean school is gay? Oh, it's just gay. I don't like going to school. What does that mean you don't like gay people then? Well, no, of course he doesn't, he said, because you know, you're my favourite cousin. I like you and you're gay. So he said it without thinking exactly what he was saying. So a lot of that is down to, to educating and education. So when I was hearing the word gay being used or the word puff being used sometimes in a derogatory way or the way people would speak about gay people, you know, it it, it would make you really scared and thinking, oh God, you know, these people will never accept me who, for who I, for who I am. We, we live in a time where, where political correctness has gone too far. It's gone to the extreme. And that I believe then, because people are looking for a reason to, to be offended now when, when there is nothing to be offended about. And that then to me undermines all the important and good work that particularly political correctness has done and is doing in bringing our society a fairer place and equality a hugely important part of that and respecting people who may be different to yourself or different to the majority or different to what the norm is perceived to be and that's why I tell people now you know when, when you're using language sometimes just 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 think what you're saying on why you're saying it because there could be someone hearing you using the word gay even though you mean nothing nasty in any shape or form, you know, to them, you, they may be thinking, oh my God, you know, this person's not going to like me because I'm gay. So, you know, and that's why probably as well contributed to, to me not opening up and speaking to people. And obviously as well, there was nobody out in the macho world of rugby. There was no, I didn't know how the rugby world would react. You know, if, if there'd been somebody out in the rugby world, if there'd been somebody out in my own community that I knew and sort of knew that they were able to get on with their lives and I would have known, well, I can get on with my life. You know, I can be out in rugby and carry on refereeing because other people are out in rugby, but there was nobody. Nobody should now be able to turn around and say, well, you know, I, I, I can't come out in rugby because rugby is homophobic. Well, no, it's not homophobic because rugby is an inclusive sport. It's prize its value on, on respect. Yes, there are things rugby can improve on and do better and continue the, the fight for equality and, and diversity and inclusion as in society in everyday life. But rugby has shown that myself, Gareth Thomas, Sam Stanley and you know, other people in, in their local communities who are out as well are able to be themselves. There'll always be a minority of people in all walks of life. You know, wherever you work, wherever you live, there will be somebody, even in your family, who will not like somebody because of the colour of the skin, because of their religious beliefs, because of the country they come from or because of their sexuality. But you know, rugby as a sport is an inclusive sport and you can be yourself in it. But but back then, you know, I, I didn't know that because there was nobody for me to to sort of test the water with to see, you know, how how will rugby react to this person coming out? And, um, you know, I, I was the first to come out in, in, in the professional game of rugby. You talked about the dark times, living a lie. Were you able to have relationships or did you just completely have to suppress that side of yourself? Um, no, I had I had some relationships, but I had to hide them, and and then that contributed to those relationships breaking up. You know, I remember going on a on a date one evening to a pizza hut in Swansea, 
and we go to the Pizza Hut, and um, one of my um, friends, uh, Dwayne Peel, who the ex-international Welsh rugby player, was a couple of years younger than me in school, um, and I was working in school at the time, comes in with his um, wife now, with his girlfriend at the time. They come into Pizza Hut, and the person I was on a date with had, had actually gone gone to the toilet. So he comes in, I'm sitting there on my own, you know, with, with two plates on, on the table and waiting for food to arrive. And he comes in, oh, and I start, and, you know, once I saw him come through the door, my, my heart stopped, basically. You know, my stomach cramped up with fear. How am I going to explain this? You know, oh my God, is he going to find out? Is he going to tell other people? You know, oh my God, it was, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. So I said, look, I've got, got to go to the toilet. I'll be back now. So I went to the toilet and said, said to the person who's on the date, look, don't, don't come back to the table. You know, my, my friend is here. They can't find out. Uh, so he had to sort of pretty much hide in the toilet for a bit. Uh, I asked the pizzas to be t- put in a takeaway box and um, sort of, you know, we asked him to sneak out. We snuck out. I snuck out and ate the pizza in, in the car. And <laughs> and that was oh. was the end end of that date. So, um, you know, it, it did contribute to, to relationships not, not working because some of the people that you went on a date with wanted just to go around and have a have a normal relationship or a normal date with people which which you couldn't do when you're living living that lie and just you know just just little little things you know when you know when somebody goes for a date with his girlfriend or boyfriend and they go to to the cinema now it's a lovely feeling is it going that first date you know going to the cinema going for food after where, where you I couldn't do that you know I couldn't do those little things which make things special and which help relationships grow so it, it was it was very difficult and I wasn't able to have relationships during during that time I certainly wasn't able to, to to keep those relationships which was also you know was 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 very difficult and very heartbreaking you'd also as well put yourself in in dangerous and difficult situations because of the secrecy of it all back then you know going on on websites to try and find the date of trying to meet people because one you know didn't know where to go scared of going to a gay club never been before scared of you know be, being seen going there or you know not knowing where to go and you go and meet people in places where you shouldn't be meeting people and this was putting you in, in a very dangerous situation or you would go to meet somebody off the internet and you know they were a totally different person to to what they told you they were or totally different image they'd sent you of, of what they looked like. And, um, you know, on one occasion, I found myself in, in a very scary situation where I was, you know, f- fearing for, for, for my life. So, um, you know, it, it's also that dangers which people don't, don't realise because of the, of the secrecy around it all, of, you know, being scared of, of being found out and, and everything. So, you know, it, it, it is. It was, it's a very, very difficult time for somebody when they are living living that lie you know honesty is the best policy I was brought up by my mum and dad you know to say that be honest be respectful and you know here I was you know lying to pretty much everybody who I was and the way I was living my life. And you've talked about how you went to the doctor and you asked to be chemically castrated which is just awful that you felt that you couldn't be accepted for who you were. When did you stop feeling that there was something wrong with you and you were just normal? Well, I'm a referee. I'm not sure if I am normal. <laughs> um, I am. Um, well, yeah, you know, I, I read in a magazine, and believe it or not, people still write things like this today about um, being gay is, is wrong. It's an illness that you can be cured from. And, and people still 
still write these things today. P- some people in places of influence, and I'm thinking to myself, do these people really know how hurtful and fatal that it can be for people who are dealing with their sexuality, reading these stupid articles, which, which are not true, because believe me, it, it is not a choice. I, I tried. I tried to do everything I could not to be gay. But I failed. You, you can't. It's, it's, it's who you are. I went to the doctor and said, look, I think I'm gay. I don't want to be gay. And I, I went to be chemically castrated. And he said, Nigel, you are who you are. It's, it doesn't work like that. And then, you know, for years after that, even after accepting who I was, you know, even though I was accepted who I was, I was still living that lie scared of people finding out. So it was only after I actually did come out and probably a few years after actually I did come out that I was able to have a, and I'm not so sure, do I have a normal life really? Because, you know, you're refereeing at the international stage, you're in the public eye, you are gay as well. So there are always people who will, who will judge you or take a dislike to you just because, just because you're gay. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the rugby referee, Nigel Owens. We'll be back after this. To enjoy more incredible stories from incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash past imperfect. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the rugby referee, Nigel Owens. How was it that rugby saved you then? Well, it was for that 80 minutes, I was free, I suppose. The worry had gone on that field for 80 minutes. I was doing what I loved, refereeing the game and and for that 80 minutes you you felt safe, you know, from all the troubles of the week of work pressures, maybe living this lie, uh, scared of being found out, suffering with the mental health issues, the bulimia, you know, the steroid taking, the drinking, all those issues. Once I stepped out on that field for 80 minutes, I was away from it all. I had, I had something I would, I loved doing to do. You know, I was refereeing the game and, and everything else was, was forgotten, I guess, for, for that 80 minutes. And it was, you know, something that you would look forward to. It, it would keep you going during the darkest times in that week, knowing that, you know, you've got a game on the weekend, which I'm going to enjoy. And um, it, it, it saved my life. It got me through those dark times. And also back then as well, you know, I, I would be refereeing 
maybe sometimes four, five, six, seven games a week, you know, some games in school, Sunday morning, um, under 16s or under 13s or 12s, junior rugby games here in Ponteberem, refereeing then games on Saturday morning and then games on Saturday afternoon as well. So, you know, it was something that I was, was looking forward to. It, it was something where I knew I was going to be safe for that for that 80 minutes and it, it did save my life because if I hadn't had the refereeing to look forward to, those dark days in that week would have been been even more difficult. Why did you want to referee rather than play? Do you think it was a, a way of taking control and of being controlled on the pitch rather than having control taken away from you? No, I don't think so because um, it happened just by pure chance, really. You know, I, I didn't sort of think, right, I, you know, I want to be a referee. Um, it happened because I missed the conversion. I was playing full back for my first 15 team in school. We hadn't won a game all season. And one of my best mates, Wayne Thomas, scored a try underneath the posts. My other best mate, Craig Bunnell, was the captain. I was the full back. And I said, look, I'll kick this now. We'll, we'll win the game 14-12. And then I'll be a hero in school. Last game of the season, our first win all season. So anyway, I took the kick and I, and I missed it. It, it. it went further away from the post than it, it could have ever imagined. And my, my mates didn't speak to me for a couple of days. My... Um, <laughs> My sports teacher, John Biner, the late John Biner, unfortunately, he was, was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, John Biner said to me after the game, he said in Welsh, he said, Nigel, for God's sake, he said, will you, will you go on referee or something? So I said, <laughs> right, again. I'll, uh, okay, then. So the following week, I went down to the gym and I said, right, okay, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll referee a couple of games. So I went to referee a couple of inter-house games in school. And, and I enjoyed it. And, and that's how it, how it started, you know, just, just by, by pure chance, really. And what was it that made you decide to come out in the end? Was there one moment where you thought you just had to be honest? Yeah, it was. Um, I was still suffering from some mental health issues after accepting who I was, but not to those dark, dark sense of, you know, of that night. And unless you're happy within yourself and allowed to be yourself, that there's no way you can excel and be the best at what you were doing or enjoying your life to, to the full because of that worry all the time in the back of your mind. And this worrying was affecting my performance as a referee. You know, imagine if you're going to work every day and you've got a constant worry on your mind, you're worrying about other things. Well, it's it's going to take your focus away and the enjoyment away from, from what you're doing. And then you are not going to be enjoying what you're doing or, you know, you, you're not going to be able to to do it as, as well as you as, as, as your potential can allow you to do it. So I did my first test match in Japan in 2005, uh, Japan against Ireland. And then I also did Scotland against um, Barbarians up in Aberdeen. And I didn't referee the two games very well. I just ref them okay. And the referee manager rang me up and he said, look, I've, I've got to appoint um, 16 international matches in the next international window. And I've got 17 international referees. So, so one referee is going to miss out. And that referee, unfortunately, Nigel, is going to be you because the performance is weren't up to the standard we expect and not as good as the other referees. And, and I knew it wasn't because at the back of my mind was this this worry of being found out, you know, will I have to give up my referee and give up my job? But, and none of us should have to make that choice. None of us should have to make a choice of, of living a life so we can carry on living our life or carry on doing our job. But it was what I thought I would have to do. And then uh, he rang back up a week later and said, look, Argentina have arranged to play Samoa in an extra game. We're going to point you to that game, but but you need to understand, he said, that if you don't perform to the standard we expect from you in this game, you, you won't be considered to referee a test match again. So I thought, right, I've got the best part of three or four months now to get myself ready for this final challenge. 
physically I was fit, but but mentally was still that that worry, that burden. And I decided, right, I, I, I've got to come out, you know, um, I can't carry on living this life. So I tell my mum, first of all, I then needed to see my line manager. Uh, so I went to see Bobby Emin and I said, look, because I needed to find out now if they were going to tell me, well, look, Nigel, I don't think you'd be able to carry on refereeing, you know, if, if you're out in rugby. If they were going to tell me anything like that, then I'd have to make a choice of, well, do I give up refereeing so I can live my life or do I carry on living a lie so I can carry on refereeing? And I knew that wasn't going to work. Um, uh, himself and, and the Welsh Rugby Union said, Nigel, we support you 100%. And, and they did and they still do till this day, as does the whole rugby world in that sense. So I went to Argentina now in, in a much better place um, and refereed that game and I refereed it well. You know, I had a great report and from then on I went on to referee, you know, a, a record 100 test matches, a record seven European Cup finals, a record six Pro 14 finals. And I wouldn't have been able to do any of that if I hadn't accepted who I was. And more importantly, or just as importantly, if I hadn't been allowed to be who I was. So the, the moment came when I decided that, that I need to come out was when, you know, I was told, look, you know, in the last chance of because I knew this was affecting my my performance and my enjoyment of refereeing and affected my enjoyment of, of life as well. And I realized, you know, I, I can't carry on living this lie, lying to the people that matter to to me more than anything in the world. And so, you know, that that, that was the time I decided, well, look, you know, I, I just I need to be honest with people here. But there were a few Welsh referees who asked not to go away with you or be involved in a match soon after you came out, weren't there? That must have really hurt. It's really shocking that you thought you might have to resign, in fact. It, it did. It did hurt a little bit. It did hurt at the time, yes. Um, you know, the, the one or two people um, had sort of said to my referee manager, look, you know, we, we, don't, we don't want to go away with Nigel um, because I'd come out as gay. And that, that, that did hurt, but then... You know, uh, my my boss and me, it's, hey, it's their loss. Don't worry, they won't be going away anyway. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was hurtful, but it, it showed, you know, that even in the great sport of rugby, there are small-minded people. And, and I, I don't know who those people are and don't really care who, who, who they are. Um, the players were all amazing, though, weren't they? They wore rainbow-coloured laces. And that must have made you feel very emotional in a way, didn't it? That you were so accepted by them and hadn't realised that you would be. It does mean a lot because it it shows a support. It does. It, it it shows you know that people do care and people do continue to to fight and and challenge you know homophobia or racism or any forms of prejudice in society today. And um, and that means a lot to people. It meant a lot to me, and it means a lot to gay people in knowing there are allies out there, that there are friends out there who who support you or. You know, don't care about your sexuality in the nicest possible way. So, you know, when some people say, well, why? You don't have a campaign for straight people. Why do you want a campaign for gay people? Well, you know, straight people have have not had to deal with the, the prejudice and the life-threatening situations, you know, and the illegality of being gay and discriminized against and living in a country where, you know, being gay is can, can mean the end of, of your life. You know, straight people haven't had to live through that. It's you know it's it's just it's showing that after years of of living a lie, of being scared for your life, of not being able to be yourself and prejudiced against, that you can now just get on with your life and 
and be yourself. And, and that's what it shows. And that's why it, it's important to have these events, not because you want to shout it from the, the rooftop or you want to tick boxes or think that gay people should be treated better than, than other people. No, just want to be treated the same. So things like this are important to people because they show support. It shows that things have moved on and people do, do care. And you're known for your brilliant sense of humour. Did that help you on and off the pitch? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, you know, I, I was on stage at, at 13 years of age in my local workingmen's club doing stand-up comedy. Uh, humour has been a hugely part of my upbringing in, in my family environment, within the community I live. You know, the Welsh people are, are known for being humorous people, very similar to the Irish people are, are known to be very humorous people. Um, uh, you know, if you look at Liverpool, for example, Liverpool traditionally have a huge amount of, of comedians coming from, from Liverpool. So, you know, as Welsh people, you you want you know, we were known for our humour and, and, and humour has, has been a hugely important part of, of my life and has helped me deal with, with difficult situations and the ability to laugh with people and laugh, you know, at, at, at myself has certainly helped uh, in, in many, many different situations. You know, I, I sometimes watch games now and see other referees trying to be funny on the field when it doesn't come natural to them. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking myself, you know, don't, don't try to be anybody else. Just, just, just be, just be your, be yourself. You know, there's, there's a time to smile. There's a time to laugh. There's a time for a joke. You know, and and when it comes natural, you know, if you go out in that field trying to be funny, trying to be all mates and pally with the players, um, you're going to get it so wrong. And I see that happening now. You know, I, I see some referees going out there, and and I, and I don't want to sound big-headed here in any shape or form, but I look at them thinking. <laughs> You know, don't try to be me now. Don't try to be funny on that field because <laughs> it's not you. You know, there are some funny referees out there, but but be yourself on on that field. And humour for it for me was a part of of who I was. And did you have any superstitions before big matches? I do. Um, you know, I wear the same. Like, we're well, not the same. That they they change at different times. I get a pair of boxes with my cousins for Christmas, and then they become my lucky boxes. <laughs> For that season. Um, what do they have on them? Yeah, well, it depends. One year it was Batman. One year it was Superman. <laughs> um, one, well, last year it was the Butlers, um, I think, um, boxers. So they vary every year, really. Um, <laughs> a Spider-Man was one year. Um, and then I, I, I wear them then until they come to an end or until I get the next pair. Um, <laughs> I always sort of listen to... Um, to music in the changing rooms, always listen to to a Welsh hymn. Then will be the last song I listen to before I go out on the field. Um, so little things like that. Um, but after saying that, I also don't rely on those superstitions um, because if, for example, I forget to put the boxes in or the iPods doesn't work for some reason, I I don't let that affect my performance or my preparation for the game so even though I do have little superstitions I do it's not the end of the world if for whatever reason they're not there because if they become so reliant and then they're not there and you go to pieces and affects your performances then then that's not a good thing but you know pretty much I think nearly every game maybe the odd game I remember refereeing a game up in Northampton Northampton against I think it was against Montpellier I think it was in the European Cup up in Franklin Gardens and they don't have a socket in the referees' changing rooms. And the battery was flat on my iPod player, little speaker. And I didn't have a, um, a socket to plug it into. So I couldn't listen to my music before the game. 
Um, so I said to the Northampton, I said, well, you want to get a socket in here? Because I couldn't listen to my music before the game. But when I go up there a year later, he comes in, Nigel, um, we put in your socket and it's, it's known in the referee's changing room now as Nigel's socket. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I didn't let that affect my performance in that game. So, yeah, I do have little superstitions that I, that I like to do, but... Um, for whatever reason, they're not there. It, it doesn't become the end of the world. There's a lot of concern about the physicality of the sport. Do you think that rugby is dangerous for children or do you think we should try and encourage more children still to get out and run about on a pitch? Look, r- rugby is a physical game, but that's why people play it and that's why people love it. It's also a game, I believe, that instills in a young person wonderful values which become a part of, of their lives and contributes to them becoming not just good people on the field, but more importantly, good people off the field as well. That's always exceptions to the norm, of course there is. So the, the positives of rugby will outweigh any negatives by, by a long, long, long way. So all we can do is make sure that we make rugby as safe as we possibly can. Um, because, you know, rugby is a sport that kids want to play. You know, when you... When kids start playing tag rugby at sort of, some of them start at five, six years of age, you know, up to the years of under eight, they're playing tag rugby, which you just touch rugby. But you ask these kids, every single one of them can't wait to move up to under nine so they can tackle. It's what makes the game that people want to play. So, you know, we, all we can do is is make it as safe as we possibly can. And um, look, I don't have any children of myself at, at the moment, Um well, would you want your children to play rugby? I haven't got children. Well, well, yes, I would, because um, I think it's it's hugely important for them, not only physically, but, but mentally and in their values and their upbringing as well, you know, contributes hugely to, to the people that they will, will become. And, you know, I, I would rather have my son or daughter out playing rugby with their friends than sitting in front of a of a TV game or a PlayStation or something, you know, uh, eating pizza, drinking cans of sugar full um, drinks and, and sitting there and becoming very, very unhealthy. Um, you know, the, to me, there's more danger in that than there is of going out on, on the rugby field and, and enjoying playing the wonderful game of rugby. So, yes, it is the physical sport. Yes, injuries will happen. So all we can do and we need to do is to make it as safe as we possibly can and do everything to make sure that player safety is paramount in the game, which which the governing bodies are doing, in all fairness. Twitter went into meltdown when you announced your retirement. How does that love and admiration from fans feel? Yeah, I'm not sure if a lot of them were glad I was finishing. That's where there was a lot of love. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's like I, I, I didn't become a referee to to be popular, uh, and that's what I tell. I, I see I see some referees today, and they just want to be popular and liked by players, and calling them mates and stuff on the field. And I'm thinking, no, no, you, you're not there to be popular. You're there to do a job, and if you do your job well and become a good referee, you will become a respected or a popular person. You know, and and that then is for the right reasons. So, you know. When I did finish and, and, and see all those lovely messages, um, you know, I, I still haven't replied to many of the e- emails, Twitters, direct messages, Facebook messages, you know, texts, WhatsApp. You know, I, I've tried to get back to as many people as I can, but I still have a l- hundreds and thousands to, to, to reply to and, and hope I, I will. Um, but it could be a, 
a bit later rather than sooner. So it, it was nice to, to, to see that. It, it, it certainly was. And, and what I wanted to do when I finished, I wanted to finish at at the top of my game. I didn't want to finish when people were saying, ah, oh, he's, he's gone too old, he's gone past it, he's, he's past his best, he should finish now. So I wanted to finish still at the top of my game. I wanted to leave the stage, I suppose, when people were still wanting or expecting more from you. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to do because when you're still at the top of your game and still performing, you don't feel that it's right to finish because you still can go on for another season or a season after that or however long it will be. So it's, that's why a lot of people find it very difficult to finish at the top. And, and that's why so many people get it wrong and, and go on too long. And I learned that lesson at 13 years of age on that stage in Money Carrying Workingmen's Club where the comedian that night didn't turn up. Um, I was doing a bit of joke telling in school and stuff to my friends and impersonating a, a Welsh comedian. So I went home, dressed up as him, went on stage and people were loving it. But I went on too long and then the laughter gradually died, you know, after about 30, 40, 30 minutes, the laughs started getting a bit less. People started talking then because they'd had enough now. Uh, and then I learned then, you know, to leave the stage when people are wanting more. Uh, and I sort of knew then that was the right decision to finish because, as you said, you know, all the, the lovely messages from all over the world, from some of the greats, from your macaws to your... Joe Mala sent me a lovely message, Ben Youngs and Dan Carter and many, many, many people all, all over the world. And that then sort of made me feel a little bit more easy with the decision because I knew then that I'd finished at the right time. I'd finished at the top of my game because people were still wanting me to carry on. You know, if I'd have gone on too long and finished, then maybe a lot of those messages you wouldn't have because people would have been saying, well, it's about time you finish now, you know? So yeah, it was, it, it was very comforting in one sense. It was nice to see them, but it also meant to me that, well, you know, I know my own ability. I know my own body. And, you know, if I wanted to, to knuckle down and carry on training and working hard, I, I could have gone on for a, for another couple of years, at least. I have no doubt about that, but um you know, when the powers of bees said after the World Cup, you know, we you know we need to look at the next generation now, then then I lost a bit then of, well, you know, well, when you know your time is coming to an end, then you sort of lose that little bit of will to, you know, to, to keep working hard, to carry on going. So it, it naturally came then at the right time to, to call it a day. And looking back now to what was probably your darkest time at 24, what, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, and, and I think it's important sometimes that you go through some difficulties and struggles in life because it can help you deal with things later on in life and it helps you grow as a person it can help you make you stronger now of course I, I i wish i didn't go through that dark dark night and what i put my parents through and what i went through myself for those many many years of course i wouldn't want that to happen again but it it, it is who i am um but i suppose looking back now the the one thing that i did realize that i I could have asked for help and should have asked for help and I could have spoken to to people and family and my mum and dad and, and shared those troubles, which would have helped me get through those dark times. But when you're in that moment, you don't see it like that. And, and looking back now, you realise, well, yes, you could have done that. So, And that would be my key message to anybody, really, is, look, don't put yourself in a situation where it can cost you your life. You know, I, I did. I was lucky I had a second chance, but... 
you know, you may not get the second chance, but when you do get a second chance, you realize that you could have prevented it happening, but you only see that afterwards. And that's why I think it's important to, no matter how dark those times are, or how how little you think the problems or how big you think the problems are, that you do share them, you do ask for help, you do speak about it because it will help and you it will help you get through it. And and that was something that I, looking back, would have done differently for sure. You know, would would have spoken to people or would have would have, you know, shared those worries with with people, uh, with my mum and dad or whoever it, it, it would have been. Do you think overcoming that adversity, though, in early life gave you a sense of perspective and a sense that now, actually, that things can only get better? Yeah, I, I suppose it has in, in one sense. You know, when you've been through those difficult, difficult times in, in your life, you know, little things now that maybe would have troubled me uh, don't trouble me anymore because I I realise, well, look, you know, I, I've dealt with things much worse than this. So, you know, I'll, I'll deal with this and I'll get through this. Um, it was the same when I went out in the field refereeing, you know, I, I didn't go out in that field not caring if I made a mistake. I wanted to go out there and not make a mistake and, and, and give my best to, to the game and to the players on the field. But also as well, there was a sense of realisation that, you know, if you do make a mistake, then it happens. There's a lot worse mistakes in, in life than, than missing a forward pass or missing a knock-on. That doesn't mean that I want to go out there and I don't care. I do care. But also I do realise, well, you know, yeah, human mistakes happen. So I learn from it and I'll make sure I do everything I can not to make the same mistake again. And I dealt with a lot of things then, um, difficult things, difficult decisions, my refereeing, a lot of things I dealt with then uh, differently in life by looking back. And, and people say, you know, you should never look back, always look forward. Well, you know, look, looking back is important as well, because looking back can help you move forward. It can help you become a better person or deal with challenges ahead by drawing from those experiences from from the past. So looking back is important, but looking forward is is, is what we should be doing as well. Nigel Owens, thank you very much for talking to us. Hey, lovely speaking to you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the rugby referee Nigel Owens. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to our previous episodes and make sure you never miss the next, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and from the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to the podcast description where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.